New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. models for resolving conflict don't really work. They waste incredible amounts of time, money, and energy and take enormous emotional toll on participants. How can we learn to resolve conflict and maximize satisfaction among all parties involved? How can we reduce the stress involved in collaborating with others? How may we change our thinking about conflict and learn to take personal responsibility for dealing with it? The answers to these and many other questions serve as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Stuart Levine. Stuart Levine was a practicing lawyer for many years and is now the founder of Resolution Works. He teaches programs on leadership, management, collaboration, communication, conflict resolution, and virtual communication. He is the author of Getting to Resolution, Turning Conflict into Collaboration. Join us for the next hour as we explore a process for resolving conflicts in an adversarial world with our guest, Stuart Levine. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Stuart, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Justine. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I would love to go back to your early days as a lawyer. It's a very interesting story. Please share that story with our, our listening audience. Sure. Um, and and this was it was almost a portending of things to come. Uh, and I hadn't thought of this story in many, many years. But when I was working on uh, the book, Getting to Resolution, the story came to mind as a wonderful way to, to start the book. And it's a story that as a second-year law student, <clears throat> working in as, an, as an intern for Camden Regional Legal Services in Camden, New Jersey, on the first day of the semester, the uh, person who was uh, head of the clinical program gave me 25 cases. And he said, Stuart, this should keep you busy for the next you know, 14, 15 weeks. Here's your work for the semester. See what you can do with these cases. Well, uh, I read through the files and got a sense of what ought to happen. And three weeks later, I went back to the head of the program and I, and I said, can I have some more cases? And he looked at me kind of shocked and said, what did you do with all the cases that we gave you? And I said, I resolved them all. And he said, well, how did you do that? I said, well, I got some sense of what was going on through reading the files, and I made some phone calls after thinking about what would be a fair resolution to all parts. 
And everybody on the other side of the situation said yes. Now, I had no idea that I was supposed to be an advocate and take one side. I thought my job was to come to a fair resolution. Uh, I, I learned uh, over the next 10 years as I became a more effective litigator what my real job was supposed to be. But with each passing year, I probably got further and further and further from the center of myself until I just uh, decided that I couldn't quite uh, engage with the legal profession anymore. What was that when you learned what your job really was at that time? Uh, what was it? Well, it was to, it was to you know, under the canons of legal ethics, to represent clients zealously. In other words, to try to take every advantage, every nuance, and to prevent things, present things only in the light of who your client was. It, you know, and that is the core of the adversarial system. I, I've certainly come to realize that in 99% of situations, that's not the best way to move through conflict. So when you decided that, that this wasn't for you after so many years, how did you strike out into something different? Or you kind of stayed in the same field. There was some kernel there that drove you to to continue on in this vein, so to speak, of conflict and resolution. Well, there was there's there is still a way in which my interpretation of the aspiration of what the legal profession is all about or could be that stood with me. But having said that, when I decided to walk away, I just literally had to walk away. Um, as a matter of fact, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a very, very emotional moment when I asked someone for a very, very simple favor, my, my adversary on the other side, and they said no. And I just turned to the phone, and I, I didn't use these words. I used some stronger mm -hmm. words. I said, you know, it's because of jerks like you that I just cannot do this anymore. Um, and I started a little bit of a walkabout at that moment in time, you know, looking for the answers um, realizing that the whole legal profession, to a great degree, uh, is about helping people resolve and move through conflict, and yet the formal education uh, in that arena was completely missing. And so I started to explore and search uh, in, in, in spiritual tasks, in religion, in communication, in psychology. Uh, for So what is conflict all about? Where does it come from? How can we move through it? And that, plus the genesis of you know having a, probably a, a hundred generative conversations, um, led to um, me realizing what it was that I had this natural inclination to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know that speaking about conflict, it's something that so many of us are adverse to. I mean, we, we just want to avoid conflict altogether. We want to uh, turn it over to the professionals, so to speak. I mean, when it does come up in our lives. Um, so what would you say? <laughs> what are, what's your view of how we, the avoidance of conflict? Sure. In, in the programs that I do around the country, um, probably uh, about 
80 to 85% of the people, um, when it comes to dealing with conflict, there's a level of, of avoidance. Uh, there, there's a level of that is um, messy, that is dangerous territory, that is uh, not a place where I want to get near. Um, and that's really true also, even for the uh, lawyers. Um, as a matter of fact, just as an aside, one of, one of the, my favorite pieces that was ever written was written by a colleague, and it was called Mediation is Not for Sissies. It was published in the L.A. County Bar Journal. And th the message is that real mediation, which is really facilitating a conversation that's a real conversation, is messy. It's emotional. You don't know what's going to come out, as opposed to a very structured kind of legal conversation. Um, so, yeah. People just kind of stay away. And the reason that they stay away is that they were never taught. They were never given what I'd call a mind, a mind map. They have no mind map, no conceptual understanding of the steps that you need to move through to move through a, a conflict. And they don't have the conversational tools in terms of how to move through it. Obviously, it is a nonlinear process. But the best tools we have kind of try to focus uh, mm -hmm. on it in a, in a linear way. You know, I, I, as you point out in your book, and as we all know, we cannot rid our lives of all conflict. There are going to be dif differences in our lives. We were, we're going to butt up against those uh, in, in diverse from our own opinions and our own actions. Uh, so, so there. What would you say about that? How how can we then learn some of these new ways of being with that? Sure. For me, the critical distinction is this. <clears throat> differences, as we all know, are a good thing. Differences, diversity, it's where we get, you know, different viewpoints, different opinions. It's where creativity and innovation happens. It's, you know... It's just, you know, part of the spice of, of, of life, you know, actually, you know, at its core, one of the things that the U.S., for example, was founded upon, you know, the, the diversity. Um, but to me, the distinction is uh, when you have conflict, it means that there is some difference of opinion that prevents you from taking a step forward towards something that you want to accomplish. And in that situation, it's difficult to just say, well, we can agree to disagree, but we have to resolve it to be able to move forward. So that's one critical piece, okay? Um, so don't get plugged in by difference. You know, learn to honor and respect the difference of, of opinion that's out there. Be curious about it to understand how different people um, think about different situations. But, but in life, as you well point out, um, sometimes you have to make decisions that involve different viewpoints um, or people who've been emotionally triggered or perceived that they were hurt by others over differences. And those are the kind of things that um, my models speak to, to provide kind of a way through. I mean, you know, we're, we're all familiar with the expression, the only way out is through. Well, the mm -hmm. only way out of a, a conflicting situation is to move through it. You know, you point out that uh, that that phrase uh, we we all now see you in court. You know, uh, and um, you you talk about that kind of situation can be like going down a rabbit hole. 
So what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, one, it is extremely expensive financially. Two, it is extremely expensive emotionally. Three, um, generally speaking, 99% of the time, there are no winners. Uh, everybody loses as you move through that process. Everybody loses. Um, it's costly. It takes up your time. It, it just um, doesn't get you where you want to go. Now, having said that, there's a narrow place narrow area of places where sometimes those tribunals are necessary to create um, some answers to an unanswerable problem. Um, but most of the time, we are much better off crafting the solution ourselves with the other person, with the, the, the help and skill of a good facilitator. Well, that can be, as you say, an emotional process. And so um, we want to go into a little bit of that, that process. Now, you have a, um, a seven-step um, model. But, but in, in those seven steps, the first step actually consists of ten principles. Am I correct in, in the way I, I'm looking at it? And so let's talk about some of those beginning principles uh, as, if when we come back. Um, I'm here with Stuart Levine, and he is the creator and founder of Resolution Works. And he is the author of a book called Getting to Resolution, Turning Conflict into Collaboration. And if you'd um, like to be in touch with him, you can go to his website, resolutionworks.com, or you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. here with Stuart Levine, and we're talking about conflict and how we can better deal with it in our lives, in our work lives, in our relationships, in, in all facets of our life. And we're going to talk about the, the 10 principles uh, to begin with of, of attitude resolution, you might say. But um, first, I, I wanted to ask you, what are the the elements that are present right now in our culture that guarantee conflict? You have some some uh, elements that you talk about. Yeah. Well. Well. 
first of all, what I want to say about that is when you think about this, um, all you have to do is turn on most of the, the news channels um, and just think about what surfaces for debate, okay? Really, it's much more about diatribe. And you always have, you know, totally conflicting opinions and everybody is trying to scream about, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, in areas where there is no inherent right or wrong. So we've got this mindset that's immediately adversary, you know, Super Bowl, okay, big cultural phenomenon, and everybody's concerned who's going to win and who's going to lose. And so people bring that mindset to the situation when there's interpersonal conflict. And it's a completely um, wrong way to, to kind of to look at it. Once you get that adversarial mindset, fear of the future comes up. Um, what's going to happen to me as a result uh, of this conflict and the end of the conflict? Uh, is my marriage going to continue? Is my job going to continue? Can I stay a part of this team? Will I be ostracized from my friends or community? So a level of fear comes up. And then when people take some of these situations in the traditional route when they get lawyers, okay, or even without lawyers, sometimes people have the inclination to stop communicating because it's uncomfortable, okay, and they stay away from what causes the, the discomfort. And that can only serve to make it worse because then what happens is people create enemies in their own mind by the way they talk about the situation and talk about the other person. And everybody becomes, uh, people tend to become self-righteous in that regard. You know, you give a good example uh, of that when you uh, talk about, you give the two women who live next door to one another, and uh, the one woman had a strip, like a three-foot strip of property that she took care of and planted flowers. It was next to her neighbor's yard. And t tell us about what happened in that well, situation. I, I, yeah, actually, that was kind of a, a, a real legal case that I handled that, that, you know, came to mind. And it was a question of, you know, who, who, who owned this piece of property? One person had been taking care of it for many, many years, even though it belonged to another person. And these folks had, had been friends for, for multiple years. And as a result of um, kind of some legal battle. Well, it, I think you mentioned that it came up because the one woman was going to refinance her mortgage and she had to have a survey done of her property. And that's when she found out that this little three feet of land belonged to her. And then what happened? And it, then it ruined the you know it is it essentially ruined the friendship, even though these people were so close for so many years. And it and it goes back to what you were saying that her legal advice was to not communicate with her neighbor. That not 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 the woman that was taking care of the land, but the other woman who actually owned it, she wouldn't talk wouldn't to talk her neighbor. Wouldn't talk to her. Wouldn't talk to her about it. Her lawyer had said, you know, break off all communication. I'll handle it. And the lawyer's perspective was um, only to do things that were what required legally, and the only value that was being honored was the legal value in terms of who owned the piece of property. And it's interesting, we were chatting before the inter this, this formal part of the interview start about how so much of the legal system is actually designed to protect um, property and doesn't honor 
the many, many other humanistic um, values. You know, something that I came to realize, um, I, I held the legal system and the legal profession very dear to my heart in terms of the ideals of it, in terms of the diligence that I, that I studied. And unfortunately, um, in a lot of situations, once I got down into the operation of it, um, it was not the best place for me to do what my real work is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Right. And and just the outcome of that particular instance that you wrote about is that the the woman who did win the legal she that she did have access to this three feet of land, even though her neighbor owned it, the animosity grew so great. She sold this property she loved so much and she moved away. It, it, you know, it, it just shows the extent that we go to here when we don't really start to grapple directly with one another, but with the rules that you or the model that you propose. Yeah, I mean, and that's the that's the kind of the mindset. Uh, you you know, you mentioned my 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 principles. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I call them principles that make up an attitude of resolution. Principles that that uh, are what I call resolutionary thinking. Um, and let's uh, let's talk about that. The you what you have ten principles that you feel really help in this resolutionary thinking. Yeah, what's really interesting is I can't tell you how many folks uh, on going into a, a situation of conflict have read my book and read about this attitude, and their mindset was completely shifted, and the way they were able to move through the conflict was greatly different. So things such as um, abundance. Uh, by abundance, I mean if we if we use our creativity, we can figure out ways that you can get what you need and I can get what my need. When we start, when we cut off communication, it makes that impossible to happen. But if we come to it with a mindset of abundance, there's enough here for everyone. Let's just use our creativity to um, figure it out. Let's be open with each other in terms of our communication. Let's honor not just our logical arguments, but make sure we um, understand how the other um, people in the situation feel about it, because those feelings kind of are, are, are critical. Let's make sure we disclose and share all the information we have about the situation. Let's look at this situation of moving through the conflict as an exercise in learning. What can you teach me about what you see, and what can I teach uh, you about what I see in Let's this situation? Let's go back to disclose. Okay. Okay, that, that's a real trigger to disclose because we want to keep, we, our tendency is to keep close to the vest what it is that we have or, or know or so that the other one won't use it against us or, or, or figure out a strategy to, to take that away from us. Great point. You can't hide it. It all comes out in the end. All right. What, what most people don't realize is even if you take this ultimately into a legal or battle it's not a question of being able to hide anything. People get in the process to discover everything you know. They get to examine you. They get to ask you questions. So it's all going to come out anyway. You might as well just put it out there and deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of yes. what informs my thinking about this notion of disclosing, of getting it all out on the table. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Um, so some of the other uh, principles of revolution, uh, resolutionary, resolutionary thinking... thinking. <laughs> 
Uh-huh. <laughs> you like that term, yes, don't I you? Yes, do. I do. I do. Um, learning. What can we teach each other about the situation? How can we educate each other? It's an exercise in learning. And, and this, the, the, one of the last ones is a critical one, this idea of taking responsibility. And, and here's, here's why this one is so important. Um, we have a tendency in our, in our culture, in our society, to want somebody else to solve our problems, to have a therapist do it to have a, a counselor, to have a parent, to have a physician, to have our boss, to have our mother <laughs> take yeah. care of the problem, okay? Bottom line is, as I've discovered, is that conflict is never about what's being argued about on the surface. It's never about who's going to get the corner office or who's going to get to drive the newer car. Um, what it's always about is some emotional hook between two people. You cannot give that to another person to resolve for you. So the notion of taking responsibility to move through and discover who you are and where your emotional hooks are by engaging with that other person is the idea of taking responsibility. Um, the only way out of the conflict as it exists within you as a, a, an emotional state um, is by moving through it yourself. Well, you have a very interesting way of beginning this process then of of getting to that emotion. I mean, uh, allowing that emotional state to be out in the open without, you know, total warfare, <laughs> you know. And um, it's that first step is about um, telling your story without interruption. So talk about that. What, why without interruption and what is, what is that, telling your story? Sure. Um, it's my, my kind of simple way of very innocently getting people to start to talk about the situation. What often happens by the time they get to me, okay, or in all conflict situations, is people have created a story in their own mind. It's how they talk to themselves about the conflict. Um, and so I use the word story not in a diminutive way, but what's the, what's the, what's the, what, what have you made up about the situation in your own mind? How are you talking to yourself? And what I ask people to do is tell their stories to each other in the presence of a third person or not. Um, you know, they could be just talking to each other. Why is, is it a critical piece to not be interrupted? Because when we have conflict, it lives in us as a story and as an emotional state. And part of the whole process, the critical piece is to give people the opportunity to purge, to get it out to say whatever it is that they need to say about the situation. And rather than have people interrupt each other, uh, take as much time as you need to enable people to say their whole story, to get it out, to get it out mm -hmm. on the table. Right. I remember you said um, in one particular case, there was someone who was in a trial and they 
actually won their lawsuit, won a half a million dollars, and and uh, the but they never. You're laughing. So tell tell the story. You, sure, you was, remember this one. I do. It was a story. It was a story that was told to me by a Canadian attorney. He went to court with his client. They won a half million dollars, uh, but it was it was in a summary proceeding without the need to testify in court. And when he got out of court, he turned to his client. He says, "You do know what happened in there?" And the client says, "Yeah, we won a half million dollars." And the lawyer said, "How come you look so unhappy?" And his immediate response was. I never got to tell my story. <laughs> we need to tell our stories, okay? I mean, it's just it's just so so critical. As a matter of fact, you know, I can recall now one of the one of the quotes I used in my book is 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 from Naomi Rachel Remen, um, who talks about the need to um, tell stories in her book Kitchen Table Wisdom, and the quote that she uses is that you know the more we don't tell our stories around the kitchen table, the more we need self help books and therapists, etc. I'm here with Stuart Levine. He is the author of Getting to Resolution, Turning Conflict into Collaboration. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Stuart Levine, and he's the author of Getting to Resolution, Turning Conflict into Collaboration. And if you'd like to be in touch with his work, you can go to his website, resolutionworks.com, or you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org, and be in touch with him. We're talking about the cycle of resolution, and we talked about telling your story. We talked about the attitudes and the principles that we should bring to that. And then um, now we're into the emotional part. Uh, so tell the story, and now the emotions are starting to come up, um, and they're on the table now, and uh, and maybe a, a little preliminary vision or kernel of resolution is starting to appear. But you caution, you caution not to begin the resolution process too early so talk about that sure i mean as i as i said um the real kernel of conflict is is in the emotion it's about the interpersonal hooks between you and i i mean and that was proven to me when i when i did divorce mediation and people came in with the thorniest custody and and property battles and as i moved them through the resolution process and they got to talk about um, and surface what was going on emotionally, um, it was amazing how much easier it was to resolve those technical, legal, property, um, money kind of questions. Um, and, and so I came up with this process for um, getting to the bottom of the emotion of conflict called getting current and complete. Um, and it's a series of what seem to be very, very simple questions that has people process the emotion of conflict. Now, what is the emotion of conflict? Well, essentially it's this, in, in, in simplified terms. We all know that 
when you have a loss of some kind, you need to kind of grieve the loss before you can let it go. In situations of conflict, there is really a loss. It's a perceived loss. It's because people had a vision of a reality that didn't come to be. Okay? They thought they were going to get something in a relationship, and all of a sudden, they're not getting that. So for them, it was a loss. Maybe they didn't have the right to expect it, but it still shows up emotionally as a loss. And so in order for them to move through the loss, they have to grieve in some way, recognize the loss, and then kind of let go of it. And what I've come up with is a series of simple questions that help people process that, that surface what's going on inside. Questions like, um, who do you need to thank and for what? What's good about the relationship? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to apologize to? Um, Are you willing to um, let this go? What else do you need to say to be able to let it go? And as people kind of respond to those questions in popcorn style, uh, as their emotions bubble up to surface, it makes sure that everything is out on the table, it clears the air, and it also provides more information. And the magic of what starts to happen is something that I call the alchemy of emotion. Uh, as people see that the others in the situation were acting on some false premise, but were still authentic in their belief or in what they did, that other person moves from being the enemy to being just kind of another flawed human being who perhaps deserves the compassion that is the core of what makes us human. So what you have done is to make this a very safe container. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Justine, because as I was doing a little bit of thinking about this interview, I was kind of uh, looking at some of you know the material from New Dimensions uh, about the whole uh, arena of deep listening, and I immediately saw the parallel of the kind of container that I create in the context of conflict. Yeah, it's a safe space in which we will talk about the situation. Um, without judgment, without the need to be right or wrong, but only the need to kind of move through it on our way to some vision of what we want the future to be. And that is because there there is some sort of vision that really wants to emerge. A- absolutely. There's a vision that wants to emerge, and even perhaps if there isn't a vision that wants to emerge, and this is something that I've learned over time. If you start with the vision that you want, sometimes you can just let go of the conflict. Okay? That's pretty high level thinking, okay, and pretty high level being, but it can happen. Um, it's as opposed to, and as a matter of fact, when I when I when I get into a real aspirational piece, I would like to think that if you and I had a conflict, as opposed to being face to face opposing each other, we could actually turn shoulder to shoulder and look to the future and go, so this isn't working the way it is, is it? And you would go, no. And I go, great. What do we want it to be? And start with 
that new vision. It's almost like it reminds me of solving geometry problems in high school. And I used to start with the <laughs> with the with the end, or as Stephen mm-hmm. Covey says, mm-hmm. begin with the end in mind. Where do you want it to go to? Right, right. Mm-hmm. What do you do, Stuart, when you have uh, when you're working with a truly difficult, obstinate person? What? Few things. Number one. Um, Talk to them about what their obstinance is costing them, okay? What it's actually costing them. And, you know, in my book, I talk about the costs of conflict. And I, I frame it in a way that um, conflict happened. It, it's some precipitating event that happened in the past. But as long as you perpetuate it, you're kind of paying a transactional cost moment to moment to moment as you bring it into the future. So that's that's one way. Because you're, you've quit... You've quit being a learning community, part of a learning community. You've just kind of stopped in your... If, if you're that obstinate person, you've stopped in your tracks, and life is going on around you, and you're trying to hold it still in some backward way. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a financial cost because mm-hmm. you have to hire people like me to come help you. Right. There's a relationship cost. There's a productivity cost from a business standpoint. And there's this emotional cost that, um, that you just referenced. That or it, it might be in a, in a marriage, it might be the cost that your children pay or something like that. Uh, yeah. Not to mention a health cost. Or health. You know, yes. the greatest mm-hmm. cause of um, disease, stress. Okay? Mm -hmm. Stress and stress comes from situations of conflict. To read something uh, from Lao Tzu that you actually use in your book, this is a quote from Lao Tzu. Do you have the patience to wait until your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself? And you go on to say that uh, resolutionaries learn their way through um they don't they don't come in with the answers already yeah that's the critical thinking that that's kind of you know i do some teaching and training of of mediators um some of whom were lawyers and uh people often think that i need to direct this towards an answer or i know the answer and one of the biggest lessons i've learned is not to have answers, you know, to go in empty and clean, to go in kind of aware of your own um, tendency or bias, and to um, let the solution emerge, you know, to not not kind of pull the grass to try to make it grow faster, but to let it surface, to let it come out of the conversation. In fact, you say, you know, we might have a solution in mind, and you warn us not to be too attached to it. Well, that's that's part of the that's part of the um, learning piece to allow yourself to be influenced by what you hear. Uh, in other words, um, yeah, you may have a desired outcome, but you know, boy, maybe you learn something through this process that you hadn't thought of before that completely shifts the vision you thought of where it went up and so it's it's like staying in a state of curiosity um, good metaphor, okay? Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, I try to um, uh, frame people before they engage in this conversation saying, you know, you may hear things that you don't like, all right? Just because you hear them, just because someone says them, A, doesn't mean that they are the truth or that that I believe the truth. Um, 
it, it also is information about what the other's perspectives are in the situation and, and use it as, as information about what's important to them and what's important to you. And that's, that's an interesting idea because you, you mentioned truth. You know, it, it's, it's their truth. There's no one ultimate truth in all of this. It's all these different perspectives, and which is coming from these little more minor truths. Well, one, <laughs> one, one, one of the great frames I also use as a key piece is the work of, you know, Angelus Arian, you know, the fourfold way. Show up, pay attention, tell your truth, don't be attached to the outcome. Show up, be present to the conversation, tell your truth, you're the operative word, um, and don't be attached to an outcome, meaning be informed by what you hear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly, exactly. So you you go on in these these steps, a cycle of resolution. You go on, you um, talk about reaching an agreement in principle. Now, this is not the ultimate agreement, so w- what do you mean by that? Sure, but w- what that I mean is after people have had a chance to tell stories to do this completion process to get it all out on the table. That's the time where the negotiation starts. That's the time where you turn forward into the future. Um, And by agreement in principle, I mean, after these conversations, there's a pretty good sense of, geez, can the marriage continue? Is the partnership going to work out? Will the community hold together? So when I say agreement in principle, I mean paint with a broad brush. So what's going to happen? It's kind of like once you have a clear picture of what the future is going to look like, a lot of the fear goes away, and now people can start creating from that agreement in principle to, all right, the details of the agreement. And that's where my agreement model comes in for constructing what our new relationship is going to be going forward. And and then you also talk about how, um, is that the time when, when you're crafting this new agreement, it's like standing on the top of a ski slope. The The rest is, is rather easy. You still have to steer, but... It's it, once you get that to that point, you've left all that difficult, painful, wrenching emotion in the past, and now you see the future, and now you can start creating the details of the future. Now that doesn't mean that you still won't feel some grief or some, you know, uh, whatever those things are. Maybe even betrayal or whatever. You're as human beings, we're still going to have residuals of those. Absolutely, it's kind of. Um, and I, I remember um, forgiveness is a big piece in this area. And forgiveness, I say, is letting go, L- letting go of holding on to that that conflict. Which, of course, you know, we most of us think that forgiveness is a gift we give to the other, and essentially, it's a gift we give ourselves. I'm here with Stuart Levine, and we're talking about conflict resolution. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Stuart Levine, and we're talking about conflict, how to resolve it in in creative ways that really, really, truly um, bring us to agreement. So let's talk a little bit about coming to agreement. Uh, how we're we're at that place that we are coming to some idea of an agreement. So what is a good agreement? Well, uh, a good agreement is 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 the basis for what I call a covenantal relationship. Um, and by covenantal relationship, I mean that we have both a meeting of mind and a meeting of heart. We are really synced on the same page about where we're going. So a good agreement is is really another way to talk about it is a visioning process. It's what do we want our relationship to be going forward. Um, interesting thing about agreement is the the one of the greatest reasons that people get into conflict is because they don't have clear agreements. In other words, we never learn what we should talk about at the beginning of any new relationship. So the best way to prevent conflict is to have clear agreements. The resolution of any conflict is to create a new agreement. Um, and, and so what do you talk about? Okay. What you talk about is, all right, what's our vision? Okay. What's our intention? What's our vision? What are the different roles we're going to play? What promises in terms of specific actions do we agree to take to bring that vision into reality? Do we both see value in having this agreement? How are we going to know whether or not we actually achieved the agreement? What are the, what are the metrics we put on it? What are our concerns and fears about moving forward together? Um, do we have the the, the right to renegotiate all the time as we learn new things. What are the consequences if we don't achieve that vision? The consequences to us as individuals, to the people around us, to the organization, to the larger culture or, or society. How are we going to resolve conflict? That's kind of the, the, the 10 steps that we need to talk about, um, either at the end of the resolution or before we begin any new relationship. Mm -hmm. And you even advocate that for, for a, a personal relationship, like a marriage or, or that, or, or a business relationship, maybe even one with our children a at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing how much um, peace it creates when you put this frame around uh, a relationship and and people are often kind of put off by it you know oh no this is this is a personal relationship this has got to do with heart and love yes it does but you know putting a frame on it and putting a container can save an awful lot of uh, anxiety you used this method I, I recall an example in your book you used it you were called into a family who had a rebellious 14-year-old uh, teenage boy who they had tried everything with. And so t how did it work with him? Sure. What well, did they try? What did they tried that didn't work and, and how did it come well, out? They, they tried everything. It was a question of a battle of wills. It was who was right and who was wrong. And uh, the person, uh, the, the youngster, was never given the opportunity to talk and speak about what they wanted, what they needed. Um, and I use the model that I've just described to um, kind of mediate 
between the boy and his parents to come up with a, a, an agreement that he participated in crafting um, for what his future would look like and what his relationship with his parents would look like and how they would interact and engage with each other. And it was amazing, you know, how it worked. Parents were actually surprised of his capacity. And um, I think that that's something that we should all take to heart in terms of, you know, how bright and smart people are. I had the occasion a number of years ago to work with a, 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 a group of 10-year-olds, and I was blown away by um, how much they knew. And it really gave me faith in the sense that um, shifting the consciousness we have around conflict uh, doesn't have to be a multiple generation process. All we have to do is teach the kids before they get corrupted. Ah, uh, well, that 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 takes us to the idea of the social implications of this kind of conflict resolution, and how it can have widespread implications in our society. Huge. I mean, you're reminding me of something that disappointed me a few years ago. I actually um, uh, was talking with the director of education for the Democratic National Committee who was thinking about um, hiring me to teach political um, actives the notion of um, resolution. You know, how do we engage with people who have different opinions? Um, this is a critical skill for participating in a democracy because we have um, pluralism. We have multiple different ideas. How do we appreciate, talk about, um, honor the different ideas of other people, you have to have some form of a, a framework for having a real deep dialogue. And I, I think the cycle of resolution is, is a, a piece of it. I'm also kind of informed by, um, when I was doing foundational work for getting to resolution, I interviewed about 100 conflict resolution professionals, one of whom was a guy named Ray Schonholtz. And he started the community mediation program in San Francisco, but by the time I got to him, he was teaching conflict resolution skills to the former Soviet republics uh, by his nonprofit called Partners for Democratic Change. And that is a, a, is a real important vision about how important being able to resolve conflict and dialogue are for a democratic society. So how would you um, recommend that one use this in their own community, let's say in their own city government or neighborhood government? What a, what a great thought. You know how often uh, municipal libraries um, will all read a particular book? Well, usually they're novels. And, and I think that one of the great ideas would be for a whole community to read a book like mine and everyone develops a, a certain conversational skill. And I'd be happy to travel to any municipality that wanted to do this and do some teaching and training in this area to get everyone into a mindset of resolution and a mindset of, of communication. That's, that's the foundation of real community. That's interesting you say that because as I was reading your book, I was thinking of different government, local government, or, uh, like who would I send on our supervisors, our county board of supervisors who supervise a whole county? Uh, who would I send this book to uh, to say, hey, you know, uh, 
read, look over this book, or or who in this city, in the city council, would I send this book to? I was thinking exactly now, that. Now, Justine, realize <laughs> that you're talking to a guy who was a municipal attorney for a number of years, so the milieus that you're talking about, I am very, very familiar with in terms of how those boards operate. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, they they really operate. They are not professionals. They are not taught. They're they're not like professional. These people in this kind of level of government, they're almost volunteers in many ways, and they need help. They look. They're looking for help. I, I agree. I agree completely. I, I agree mean, in the, in the smaller communities, maybe in larger communities and larger cities, they are professionals. But you know, and this this is where democracy really needs a helping hand, and it's grassroots. Yeah, I'm actually working on a couple of projects now, collaborations to um, figure out the ways to deliver this kind of um, education and to increase uh, capacity to get people involved in that way. Oh, I think that's very, very exciting, Stuart, very exciting. So tell me, we're coming to the end. Is there anything else that you would like to to share with us about your vision for the future, for how this work will be moving, and, and what exactly is Resolution Works, and what... what? Your well, vision for it? Sure. Resolution Works is is my organization. Um, it's the kind of the consulting practice that I have. I do a lot of education, training, facilitation. Um, I've uh, been training people for a few years. I'd like to kind of uh, expand that greatly. Um, you I, also work with uh, in virtual networks. Uh, do you want to say anything about that? Sure. Yes, I do. Um, more and more, we are we are working in virtual environments with, with people that we don't see all the time. Uh, it takes um, the critical skills that I talk about here are very much a part of that because we're not in face to face communication, um, and so I'm working on some um, learning programs in that area, and, and also. Even situations like um, oh, Facebook or LinkedIn, all these social networks, um, to participate in those effectively, people need the kind of skills that I'm, I'm talking about. And so all these different areas, I think, are, are you know, right time, right place. Uh, not to mention the word collaboration. Wherever you go, you see that word. Um, and, and so I think the time has come. I look at this potential for this work on an international basis in terms of um, I look at some of the diplomatic protocols uh, and I say, hmm, there's a much better way. Uh, There's a much better way that we can have authentic conversations to move through some of the challenges because I know that citizens on the street uh, really are not that concerned with the diplomatic protocols but just want to live in peace. Yes, Yes, so we want that vision. Well, Stuart, this has just been our privilege to have you with us today. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Stuart Levine is the author of Getting to Resolution, Turning Conflict into Collaboration, published by Barrett Collar Publishers. And if you'd like more information about his work and be in touch with Stuart, you can go to his website, resolutionworks.com. Or you can get there by going to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org.
My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3335. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.